Amen. Good morning and welcome to the house of the Lord. And those of you joining us online, good morning to you also. We are in the book of Acts, chapter 12 this morning. We will take verses 6 through 19 in the study, but we will read verses 5 through 19 in under three minutes. It's worth it. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word, Acts chapter 12, beginning in verse 5 through verse 19. So was Peter, therefore, pardon me, Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. And when Herod was about to bring him out that night, Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and light shone in the prison and struck Peter on the side. Pardon me again. Verse 7. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison, and he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly, and his chains fell off his hands. Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. So he went out and followed him and did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they were past the first and second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and went down the street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. But they said to her, you are beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. So they said, it is his angel. Now Peter continued knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. But motioning to them, With his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Go, tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. Then, as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. But when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down to Judea of Caesarea and stayed there. Please be seated. Now, even with the fumble, that wasn't too bad, was it? It was a good recovery. Faithful unbelief. That's what we're going to consider this morning. Faithful Peter doubted that he was being delivered, thinking it was a vision. Then the faithful believers doubted that he was delivered. While they were praying for his deliverance, and he's knocking at the door. We are not picking on these believers. We are appreciating that the Holy Spirit has preserved this for us 
so that we could be encouraged because we too, though faithful to the Lord Jesus, find ourselves sometimes in a state of unbelief. We're just not getting it. We're just not feeling it. A trusting God does not always deliver the desired results to us. We trust God, and then the worst happens. Well, this happens in the scripture, and it happens in our lives, and we as believers, we learn to process it and do something about it or do something with it at the very least. A shallow faith stops right there. I did not have my urgent need answered, and they don't grow. They may even backslide. Remember, the prophet met Naaman's needs, but he did not meet Gehazi's wants. And there's a lot, of a, le- a lot of lesson in that for us. Our Lord, through the Holy Spirit, is constantly calling us to do what we cannot do in our own strength, to depend on him. If we are going to accomplish things for the kingdom, we want to do it in communion with God, with the Holy Spirit, with the Lord Jesus Christ, and not just because it seemed to be the thing to do. We want that communion, that fellowship. And it is certainly easier to sink downward than to struggle upward. This is just a fact of the life, the world we live in. Especially when there is no flame in the heart. It's very difficult to fight upward, to get out of some rut that we might find ourselves in, or some bad habit that perhaps we have latched on to. Charles Spurgeon said long ago, a touch of enthusiasm would be the salvation of many a man's religion. Some Christians are good enough people. They are like wax candles, but they are not lit. Oh, for a touch of the flame. And I don't want to be a wax candle. I, I, I do not want to be without the flame. But... I have to work for it. Nowhere in the scripture does this come to us easily. Uh, It is a struggle. Persistent faith presses forward. This is emphasized in the New Testament. It existed certainly in the Old also. Matthew chapter 11, verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. There is force involved. There is this struggle not suggesting being violent towards people, but it is, there is violence concerning the evil and the sin and the self. I mean the self, the sinful self. It just makes us petty people at the least. Monstrosities at the most. Luke chapter 16, the law and the prophets were until John. Now Christ is talking about the transition period into the New Testament. And he continues to say, since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. You start hearing the gospel message that started with John, it ended and started. He came on the scene, repent for the kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom of God is here at hand. And Christ picks up that sermon and that, that teaching and goes forward with it and a lot more. And the righteous... And everyone that is looking for the righteousness of Christ is pressing in. I'm reading these verses to press the point 
that persistent faith presses forward, whether prayers are answered or not, whether our desires are granted or not. I mean, you can put, you, you can put so much into something, and then when you get the opposite result, it can be devastating. I tried so hard. I tried in ministry. I tried to serve. I tried to be a good father. I tried to be a good uh, whatever it is. And then you meet with some failure. What are you going to do? The idea is to press forward. Apostle Paul, I press toward the goal or the prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We are faithful when we believe in Christ, but we are not always full of belief when it comes to how things are going to turn out. God knows this. For the Apostle Paul, he told the believers, it just tells us in Acts 14, strengthening the souls of the disciples, which means they were weakening or at least susceptible to, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. Because straight and narrow is the way. And to get through a narrow opening, one has to squeeze through, press through. And so don't be surprised when you find yourself pressing forward in your faith, squeezing through. It's not as easy as maybe you were expecting it to be. Don't be knocked out of the box by that. Keep going. It is going to be fruitful if you persist. And, of course, prayer is a big part of this. We've got to learn how to pray. I don't know why it is we think that because we are saved, we automatically know how to pray. Well, some it may come more easy to them than others. But some of the rules for prayer, I'm going to list 800 of them. Here are 800 points. <laughs> I'll just give four that I send out to me. When I pray, I must pray within the rules of Scripture. I cannot go outside of what the Bible teaches. I cannot go contrary to what the Scripture teaches in my prayer. When I pray, I have to remember to trust in the character of God. That if he allows or disallows, he is still good. And I will trust him for that and leave it there. I will pray with sense. I don't think stupid prayers glorify God. And by, by that, I mean prayers that just are mindless. And there are those that offer mindless prayers. They just aren't even thinking about what they're saying. And then, and uh, we'll get to that towards the end. I'll quote that from Corinthians, where Paul says, I will pray with understanding. And then I will pray to the finish. I'm not just be knocked out because things aren't turning out my way. If it takes a lifetime on a particular prayer request... So long as there is breath in me and an opportunity, I will stick to it. I think this has something to do with what we're talking about. Because here is Peter on death row. He's, he's going to be executed at daybreak. The saints are praying hard for him because they already lost James under the same circumstances. Whether they prayed so hard for James or not, we're not told. We can assume that they were praying for James which would be exciting because James, of course, was beheaded. And rather than pack up their prayers and keep and, and no longer go forward, they're praying. In verse 6, we look at, because verse 5 set up for us, Herod had arrested Peter. 
And when Herod was about to bring him out that night, Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Six men watching one. As I mentioned, we, we're, well, where it says, and Herod was about to bring him out, this is the daybreak execution. That's when it was scheduled for the morning. But the believers, they did not cast away hope. They were praying. Peter was sleeping, it tells us here in verse 6. Probably the only Christian that got any sleep that night in Jerusalem was Peter. The one who was in jeopardy. The one that was in danger. He's just sleeping. Apparently resting in the will of God. There's some exhaustion there too. But Peter understood what the Lord said to him. The prophecy, and we've covered this going through Acts. That he would be old when it was time for him to die, and he would die the martyr's death. Peter brings this up in his second letter. He says, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus showed me. Well, that's years later that he writes that, what we know as Peter's letter. But in these days, he's still relatively young. It's not time for him to die. And that's why I say he's resting in the will of God. Peter had no hope of being raptured. He functioned as an extraordinary Christian, as an extraordinary apostle, without ever thinking that one day I'll be raptured. He would die a violent death because of the things he believed, and to him it was worth it, and he would do it again. Peter was delivered from prison twice, that we read about. Paul, not so much. We'll come to that. But here, he lives in the shadow of the cross, all of his Christian service. As I mentioned, Paul notified the Christians that we, through many tribulations, entered the kingdom, encouraging them to not give, give in. Acts chapter 9, God said this to Paul. I will show him, he's saying it to Ananias to, get, to tell Paul, I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. When it is my time to die, I would like to go, to go out of this life like my grandfather, asleep, sound asleep, not screaming and crying and carrying on like his passengers. <laughs> I didn't deliver that right. I don't know. Something was missing, but you got the point. <laughs> Grandpa asleep at the wheel. Who doesn't want to go out in their sleep? I think we all do. Maybe when you're young and, and, you know, just enter the face and you're all excited. But as time goes on, you know, you just, you know, I, I think I'll just go with the easy way. And well, we want to go the way God wants us to go, whether it is through life or out of life. Bound with two chains, verse 6 still, between two soldiers and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. There is a difference between being asleep while chained and asleep in chains. Now that makes my point. Some are active in faith in spite of life's limitations, restrictions, the things that they just cannot do, the freedom that they cannot achieve. Others are just inactive, prisoners of life not doing much for the kingdom, not even talking to God about, is there anything else I could do for you? 
which I think is a sensible prayer. We talk about praying sensibly. Lord, who are you? What would you like me to do? Growing in the knowledge and grace of God. Well, we meet Christ and we, we know him personally, but there are things about him that we have to learn as life moves forward and relearn. And that's why Paul prayed that the believers would grow in the knowledge of, and grace of Christ. Interesting. Oh, the grace and knowledge. Because some have the knowledge, no grace. But to have true grace, you're going to have some Bible knowledge. That will, that's a critical point that Satan does not want you to get. And there are entire churches and denominations that have tossed what the Bible teaches away and they're just now doing their own thing in the name of the church. And that is less than ideal. Verse 7, Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison, and he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. Angels are God's servants who serve God's servants also. I mean, they do other things. But one of the outstanding features about angels in relation to us is that they serve us at God's behest. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? Psalm 134, 7 tells us that the angel of the Lord encamps about the righteous. Elisha asked God that, he could, that the servant's eyes, that God would open his servant's eyes so he could see that there were more with them than against them. And there he saw the chariots of fire. Matthew 4.11, after Christ had faced Satan in the wilderness, then the devil left him, Luke adds, for a while. And behold, angels came and ministered to him, to the Christ, our Lord. 1 Kings 19.7, speaking of Elijah, who had this great, this, this, this fantastic victory on Mount Carmel against evil. And then he flees. At, once he gets to the gate of the city and he finds out there's a, a contract on his life to kill him, he flees to the wilderness. And there he feels he's a failure because in that sense he is. And the Bible tells us, And an angel of Yahweh came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat because the journey is too great for you. And so there we see the angel ministering to the prophet, making him strong to continue his work. We'll come across angels in the book of Acts at least twice more, strengthening Paul, the apostle. It says here in verse 7, a light shone in the prison and struck Peter on the side and raised him and raised him up. Is that the same verse that gave me a hard time earlier? <laughs> am, I, am I being stalked? It's interesting, the light awakened no one. They're all so sound asleep. This is what we could say uncreated light in the physical realm, certainly brought in from the spiritual. In other words, he didn't light anything. It just comes with this messenger of God. It is going to help Peter find his sandals <laughs> and his cloak and the exits. This messenger strikes Peter just enough to awaken him without harming him. It is a heavy strike, according to the Greek word. 
It is the same word that's going to be used when the angel strikes Herod to death. But he doesn't kill Peter, doesn't even harm him. But he gets him up. Evidently, Peter was in a deep sleep because he's groggy enough to suppose this is not really happening. Well, saying, arise quickly, and his chains fell off his hands. The miraculous still called for action. This was a miracle, that the, just the fact that the angel's in the room with him, that there's light uh, coming from uh, no known source other than the angel, and that um, uh, the, Peter's, the chains have fallen off of his hands. The miraculous, though, still called for the action in the, in the physical. Peter still had to do things. He didn't just hover his way out of jail. Luke, who is the author of the book of Acts, was careful about his research. We, we learn that in Luke's gospel, chapter 1, verse 3, where he says, I, I paid attention to these things. I was very careful. I investigated what I'm telling you, O Theophilus. In verse 8, then the angel said to him, gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, put on your garment and follow me. Here's the interesting thing. Gird yourself and tie on your sandals. God told Moses and Joshua to remove their sandals when they stood before him because it was the time to worship. Peter is told to put on his coat and sandals because it is time to move. John's Gospel again, chapter 21, Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. Well, he's girding himself and he's not old yet, not relative to the prophecy. He's still in control of himself, his future, his destiny to the, under the leadership of God, the Lord Jesus. Peter was responsible to put on his shoes and his garment, his sandals. He would remember this for the rest of his life, no question. It certainly impressed Luke. He's writing this 15, 20 years later. He had to go back and question people about this, which would have been Peter and John Mark and whatever believers were around when Peter first told the story while it was fresh in his mind. Verse 9, So he went out, followed him, and did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. Well, he had a vision before while in Joppa, and this tells us that visions of God are of that real. They make a, a, such an impression on us. But this, again, is no vision, and Peter is not able to make that distinction yet. Well, that, again, is encouraging to me. Things are not all, you know, just automatic. Sometimes it just is to have to unfold before us. Maybe somebody asks you something or requests something of you, and you, at least I do, purposely, often take my time to get back to them because I, I, I pursue it with the Lord. Well, that comes with the position that I have as a pastor. But even outside of being a pastor, I try to practice that. Um, it's, it's a good practice to give space to the Lord to minister to you if, if you have time. Verse 10, 
When they were past the first and second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. Angels, again, in Scripture, never appear to be interested in hanging around here any longer than they have to. There's just no place like home. And we, we see that once they did their minute mission is finished, they're out. They say, well, you know what? There's this little shop right around the corner. I just have to go by there. There's none of that. When they were past the first and second guard posts, Peter is quietly following along. And maybe it's good he thinks it's a vision because he has a role to play within the vision. And maybe if it wasn't, he might have been, you know, very nervous. Could you, could you imagine? But to him at the moment, this is, this is surreal. Uh, you know, in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, he has this scene where Christian, the, the character, is uh, going to the, the house of these other believers, and there's these two mean dogs outside. I think they were dogs, not lions, but they might have been lions. Uh, anyway, he, he has to pass them. They're chained, and he's told that they, they can't reach him. He has to, by faith, go past, overcome this terror. And I would think that, they would, you know, most of us, without the Spirit, there would have been an element of terror trying to get out of the prison. What if one of them wakes up? What if I trip? And anyway, that's part of the scene. I think this is why it is recorded as it is recorded, so we can identify with the severity of these uh, circumstances that Peter is faced with. They came to him. It continues in verse 10. They came to the iron gate that leads to the city. Well, this iron gate leads out of the jail, not into the city. There are other gates that do lead into the walled city of Jerusalem. This is not one of them. That's not what it, it is saying. It is saying they're going out of the gate that's going toward Jerusalem. Earlier in Peter's ministry, he came to the gate called Beautiful as he went to the temple within the city, and he and John, of course, uh, healed the beggar and, made, and converted him also. And now he comes to the iron gate of the ugly jail. Nothing beautiful about this gate. Life is that way. It is filled with uh, paradox and irony and surprises, but also victory. Were there no victory, we wouldn't have this record here before us. This is preserved for us. This does no help to the Christians in heaven. They are past this stage. Their glorification is complete. We, however, are still in the days of probation and conflict, and we are to benefit from these stories. Uh, life has iron gates. That some, some of these iron gates in life we won't get past until we're out of this life. But it's up to us to, to exit the gates we can get past and to know how to behave behind the gates we cannot. Peter, he made converts outside these gates. Paul, he made converts within the gates. I mean, we have the Ephesian letter, the Philippian letter, the Colossian letter, the letter to Philemon. These are, pretty, these are jailhouse letters. And they're not, this is a testimony to functioning whether the gate opens or not, 
unconditional service should attract us. Twice, God spoke directly to Jeremiah while he was in jail. One of his imprisonments almost cost him his life. Had he not been pulled out, had there not been a slave that on his behalf asked the king to take Jeremiah out of the mire. God had power to deliver Jeremiah from jail as he had power to deliver Peter, but he did not. Jeremiah 33, verse 1, Moreover, the word of Yahweh came to Jeremiah a second time while he was still shut up in the court of the prison. And then it goes on to, to God is speaking to him. And you know, I would have said, Lord, this is incredible. This is the maker of the universe speaking to me. Could you open that iron gate and put those guards to sleep so I can go to that little coffee shop that the angel wasn't interested in? Anyway, it says, which opened to them of its own accord. Again, still supposing it is a dream, but it is very real. And they went out and down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. There was nothing else to do uh, concerning this event. And so Peter is, is now moving forward. Verse 11, and when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel <clears throat> and has delivered me from the hand of Herod. And from all the expectation of the Jewish people. Now, of course, uh, this reads almost as though, well, Peter's Jewish. You know, so it's not, he's talking about those Jews who not only rejected Jesus as being Messiah, but were hostile towards those who believed that Jesus was Messiah. Paul has some very strong things to say about this group. In Thessalonians, I'll just take verse 15, but he talks about his own countrymen hounding him. He says, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us. And they do not please God and are contrary to all men. However, when Paul is writing that, he's saying to the Thessalonians, your countrymen are doing this to you. That your Gentile countrymen are doing to you what my Jewish countrymen are doing to me. Opposing the gospel of Jesus Christ and his servants. Verse 12. So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, and uh, Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. Now remember, Luke's not even a Christian at this point when these events are taking place. He has to go back and research it. This is the difference between a book and a letter. You know, a letter is sort of off the cuff with a few references here and there. But a book, you research it, it's, it's, you know, you organize it, outline it. It's a whole different structure. Uh, and I think that says something. It's kind of nice when you get, a, you know, a letter to Philemon. It's very personal. This is addressed to Theophilus, who we believe was an individual. It could have been just a code name for Christians at large. Nonetheless, it's well-researched, documented. And here in verse 12, we now meet John Mark. We met him in the Gospel of Mark, but not by name. I'll come to some of that, perhaps. But the first Christians, they did not have their own buildings, not till the 4th century. Were they allowed to have their own buildings? wasn't something like, oh, this is great. Let's just meet at Louis' house. And, you know, that, well, that's just not practical as you start growing. 
Well, one of the big things you need, restrooms. I mean, to a facility, to facilitate an assembly. And we are very grateful um, for having, being able to have such a facility as this. I read, you know, the missionary reports, one of them, um, Pastoral Training of Asia, Asia uh, Jim Davies. He, he ministers mainly Thailand, Vietnam, mainly the Philippines, but the, all that region of Southeast Asia. And, oh, he springs up often the humidity. As you got to, you know, uh, instead of worrying about hitting a deer, they worry about an elephant hitting them in Thailand. And, and you read these reports, you say, boy, Lord, I'm sure glad you didn't call me to that ministry. All right, never mind. Just stay serious because some people don't know how to joke. Anyway, back to, back to what we're talking about here. This, uh, the, the, the believers are meeting in the house of Mary because they cannot have a church to meet in. Paul later rented space from Tyrannus, and there he ministered for almost two years. And the, the early Christians in Jerusalem would meet in public places such as the, the temple grounds, uh, in Philippi, they, Paul and Luke found believers meeting by the river. Uh, so uh, this is how it was then. This is the first mention of John Mark, as I, as I said, by name in Scripture. The early church ascribed the authorship of what we know as the Gospel of Mark to this John, John Mark, a companion of Paul, a companion of Barnabas and Simon Peter. He's very much plugged in. And he shows up in the book of Mark at the arrest of Christ. They, the soldiers grabbed him, but he wiggles free. Likely there's soldiers probably have a spear in one hand, just grab him with, uh, you know, with the other hand, and he manages to get free. And it's sort of random. He runs away nude, it says. Uh, <laughs> the biblical streaker. So uh, what, why? Why is this in there? Well, it's probably a little signature of what do you call a um, cameo. Of, of Mark, the, the, uh, the, not the author, but the writer, the scribe of the Gospel of Mark, because the Lord Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith through the Spirit of God. Well, uh, this house that they're meeting in is the house of his mother Mary. Now, Mark was a cousin of Barnabas, whom we've already met. We'll meet him further in Scripture. We know this from Colossians chapter 4. That means that this Mary was the aunt of Barnabas. Interesting how they had this little family thing uh, plugged in, and it's very, very sweet. It is. Uh, his surname, Mark, was adopted. It is a Gentile name, a very common. Marcus was a common name in the Latin amongst the Romans, and John was a very common name amongst the Jews. And so he had two uh, common names. Uh, there, Mark will become the dominant name, and likely because he he has some knowledge of Gentiles, which is why he probably wants to go on the the, the second mi uh, mission with Paul and Barnabas. And even though he flunks, he ends up again in the mission field with Peter and Paul years later. And so Mark becomes the dominant name, so that he, uh, he more easily identifies with the Gentiles that he is ministering to. Um, it, it certainly can't wait to just talk about him as we go through the New Testament. We find him with 
in Antioch, in Cyprus, in Perga, where he departs. We find him rejected. And then, ultimately, he becomes useful to Paul and Peter, as, as I said, and to Christianity. I mean, the Gospel of Mark is just a one, two, three gospel account. You want to quickly get a, a, a view of the gospel, go to the Gospel of Mark, 16 chapters, and you're done. You'll probably read it in a month. You probably can read it in one sitting, but it'd be all day for most of us. Anyway, um, I, I have to boast about this because I'm not doing it again. I once read Jeremiah in one day. It took the whole day. I was famished. <laughs> but it was a, a good experience um, to me. Second Timothy chapter 4 this long after Mark had failed Paul and he refused to take him again. But that is something that was overcome. He writes to Timothy, Paul does, Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. It's one of the sweetest rebounds of Scripture. He, he just Here is Mark. He fails, and Paul wants nothing to do with him at that earliest stage. And he and Barnabas get in this heated argument. Barnabas goes to Cyprus with Mark, and Paul goes with Silas back to Turkey and Europe. And it is, uh, but, but then you would, we're glad the story doesn't end there. And I can read my Bible, and I find a character like Mark, and I say, I fail. I get it wrong. I blow it. And yet God keeps pressing me forward. I can't quit. That's a horrendous, uh, you know, alternative. What am I going to do? Give up? I'm just done. I, I, I didn't get that right. I'm finished. There'd be three, three cheers in hell over that. And uh, just be stoked by these kinds of things because they are preserved for us. Anyway, this prayer meeting is not a general prayer meeting where you, can pray, where you gather and you pray as the Spirit moves you to pray. This, you know, they weren't there, someone trying to hog the floor and pray up everything and leave nothing for anybody else. Well, you know, Pepe just prayed for everything. Let's all just close in prayer. It's, all right, maybe you haven't sit in many prayer meetings as I have over the years. But uh, anyhow, here, it is centered on Peter, not on everything. This is, uh, a, a, you know, a special prayer meeting called to get him out of jail, save his life, Keep him from torture. Verse 13. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. <laughs> the name Rhoda. Rose is what it means. She's a household slave. We know that because the Greek word for girl really is a slave girl. And yet she's a believer. We know that from the way she responds. Verse 14. When she recognized Peter's voice because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. Now, the gate's outside the house, and so it's almost a compound kind of a picture. <clears throat> it's her job as a slave girl, to, as everyone is praying, to make sure if the phone rings, she answers it. And, and of course, the gate, in, in this case, she had evidently heard Peter's voice enough to recognize it through the gate, which means she had sat through Peter's sermons. I mean, if she's just this slave girl that's not a believer, 
how often does, does Peter come over and she hear his voice? Well, it, it fits wonderfully into the story, and her excitement helps, supports this, that she had heard Peter preach and speak enough that uh, there was no mistaking who was on the other side of that gate, likely a wooden gate. It says, because of her gladness, she did not open the gate. She was so excited, she forgot to open the door. This is what we're praying for. And she, she abandons him at the gate. God did not, so, so let's get this right. God delivered Peter from jail, but Peter, God couldn't get Peter into a prayer meeting. It's, it's kind of, com, it is comical. And it was comical to them. And I'm sure when Luke was writing this, it was humorous to all of them. How many times did they retell this story with this being an indispensable part of the story? We're praying for him. God delivered him. Now for the humor. So uh, it just, you know, this is wonderful. Imagine the look on Peter's face because he's nervous. He knows it's going to be a manhunt for him. And he's got to get to a safe place. But he has presence of mind. I've got to tell the believers I'm out. There's no way he would have known a prayer meeting was taking place unless... They did this for James, and he would have known they were doing it for him, which I think is what was happening. But ran in and announced that Peter stood before the door. Well, it's not over yet, the humor. Peter is here, the one we're praying for. He's outside, waiting for me to let him in. <laughs> I mean, she didn't say it that way. <laughs> uh, again, this is a story that you just love to tell, verse 15. But they, but they said to her, you are beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting that it was so, so they said, it is his angel. Okay, now it gets more goofy. And it, uh, the New King James downsizes the language from the original sum. Uh, the church praying fervently from verse 5 and verse 12. They're fervently praying for Peter's release. And they accuse her in a somewhat lighthearted way of being crazy. You're out of your mind. That's what they're, in other words, they're saying, you, you know, we know you, you really want him to be out so bad you're imagining things. And this is not a heavy-duty charge against her, but it is, the point is they don't believe her. They, they, they're not questioning her honesty. They're questioning her rationale. <laughs> so uh, who knew prayer requests were something God could, would grant? Who, who, we just gathered to pray. We didn't think he's actually going to do something. <laughs> Is this not a wake-up call for all of us about prayer? That's why when we approach prayer, it's the character of God that's primary. He may not, or he may do something that I... He may not help in the dire straits, but has nothing to do with his character, and he'll make it right when I see him in heaven. That's what we learn from the Bible. But there's more to everything than what we see in this life when it comes to God. Well, <laughs> again, maybe they prayed for James and they're just astonished. There are many things that God will do without us. There are many things that God will not do without us. And even though they did not believe the girl that their prayer was answered does not mean they were not praying in faith. God granting their prayer. Uh, Job. God said, your, your friends that accused you, you need to pray for them. 
Well, they actually told the friends, Job's going to pray for you, and if, if he doesn't, you're in big trouble. So God was not going to uh, forgive these men without Job interceding on their behalf. What lessons were in that? Elijah prayed for rain. You know, the, the, he sent a servant seven times, and finally there's a small cloud on the horizon coming. Elijah prayed for the three kings in the wilderness. He was so, he was so upset with those guys. Look, I just need some music right now. And he summoned a musician, and then he began to, to minister as a prophet and tell them what they needed to do to get out of this situation that they got themselves into. The Ninevites, the unbelieving Ninevites whom Jonah was dispatched to, this is what their king said. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? He's saying it's worth persisting, pressing through with God. We've listened to the prophet Jonah. We have a chance to do something. Let's not give up. This is the faithful prayer of unbelief from the faithful. And they're not rebuked for it. This story is here for all of us to say, you can up your prayer a little bit more. Just pay attention to the lessons. So they said it is his angel. Well, why would the angel knock? I mean, it could, I mean, really, who's the crazy one here? <laughs> Humorously, uh, they're accusing her of being nuts, and here they have this odd theology. Well, unbelief leads to believing unbelievable explanations. You know, you've seen people try to explain miracles. The Bible's, the miracles of the Bible explain. Well, they're not miracles then. You, you know, the way you can explain a miracle is that God... Here's a, here's a physical way of explaining spiritual miracles. Um, aerodynamics is the law of overcoming gravity with control. There's a law of gravity which keeps things down, and then there are laws of aerodynamics which overcome those laws. Well, God has many of those, and he can overcome a, a sea. He can cause it to roll back and make the ground dry. There are laws that, uh, and if you don't like that, you can just end it all with saying he is God Almighty, he is sovereign, and he do whatever he wants to do. Yeah, he's got uh, everything that it takes. Anyway, this Angel, it is his angel. Well, they believe in guardian angels, and so do I. Matthew 18, take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Nowhere in that verse does he suggest that that is only for the little people. You know, the real tiny kids and tots. I believe it is for the adults. Luke chapter 16, verse 20, 22, adults also. Because, you know, there's this thing that God loves children more than, you know, <laughs> you know God, God's saying to a little child, I love you as a little child, but when you get old, I'm not going to love you anymore. Because <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. That's not God. Isaiah says he will be with you even through your old age. Luke 16, 22. So it was that the beggar died. That would be Lazarus by name. And was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. <laughs> what, a, what a contrast. One went to heaven, the other was put in the ground. Oof. Hebrews again, chapter 1, verse 14. Are they not ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who, in, 
who will inherit salvation. Yes, they are. Verse 16. Now Peter continued knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. (laughs) Uh, He's nervous about the manhunt. Peter, it says here, and when Peter opened the the door and saw him, they were astonished. But he motioning, verse 17. Well, let me, before I go to verse 17, they see Peter and say, what are you doing here? You can't get out until the prayer is answered. I told you I'd read this verse about prayer, verse 1 Corinthians 14, 15. Because the Gentiles in the church at Corinth had brought many wacky ways into the, mingled it with Christianity, and Paul was the one that had to address it. He says, what is the conclusion then? I pray with the Spirit, and I will also pray with understanding. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will also sing with understanding. I won't be bellowing out songs in a language I don't know or understand. And I, 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 don't, I can listen to one, but I can't sing with it, or, nor can I agree with it, unless I know what it means. There's a story about troops in the Korean War. They were going on their patrols, and they, they could hear in this little village this singing in Korean. But it was to the tune of a hymn. I don't remember the hymn that it was. And they knew instantly they were Christians singing hymns, even though it was in Korean. And, and that is a little uh, different, because you have understanding in, in, that, in that case. But often, uh, pray with understanding. Verse 17, but motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, go tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. So he shushes them. <laughs> Maybe they're all talking at one time. Peter, we can't believe it. And he says, shush. <laughs> or he just, no noise, be quiet, one or the other. But either way, he needs them to be quiet. This is James. Remember, James, the brother of John the Apostle, was killed by Herod before Peter. This James is the stepbrother of Jesus, who is the one that wrote the letter of James we have after the letter to the Hebrews. And uh, he will show up again. He's the brother of Jude, who wrote the letter we have by that name. He will show up again, and there will be some tension between he and Paul Uh, He, by this time, assumes a leadership role in the church in Jerusalem to his credit. Initially, he was an unbeliever of Jesus Christ. Uh, But after the resurrection, Christ met with him, and he's a full-blown believer. But he is having a hard time. He's going to have a hard time breaking away from his legalism. Because once legalism gets hold of you, it feels so good to the flesh. And it is a hard thing. It's it's like a, a terrible weed. Uh, coming back to this, uh, verse 18, Then as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. Uh, yeah, they had anticipated they were going to have him dead by this point, and now whatever what happened, we will read of Peter one more time in the book of Acts in chapter 15, and after that, Paul becomes a central figure amongst men. Verse 19, But when Herod had searched for him and not found him, He examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. 
Well, the four guards on duty, likely, is who is the ones that were first scourged to try to get a confession out of them, that they took maybe bribe money or something like that. But uh, ultimately, they were killed because if you let the prisoner go, you were to take their sentence, which is, validates that Herod was going to kill Peter. Herod will not return from Caesarea. God will execute him there. And I close with this verse because we can all identify with it. This is a father appealing to Christ to heal his child. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, Mark's Gospel, chapter 9, verse 24, with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. So God does not... rebuke us. He understands. He does, you know, oh, you of little faith. There are those times. But God works with unbelievers, and he works with believers who have a hard time believing, too. When I say God works with unbelievers, he works to save their soul. He invites them. He appeals to them. He comes beside them through the Holy Spirit. And he does treat us with kindness and mercy also. And if you think that God is just fed up with you, you're probably listening to Satan. Unless you're doing it in a, a reckless way where you don't care what God thinks. Now, that's a whole nother story. But the mercy of God endures forever. Let's pray. Our Father, we, um, we know there is no God like you. There is no other God. There are evil forces. And then there is you. We find ourselves cast into this life, chained by sin, and yet encouraged to perform, to be righteous, to be loving. All the virtues that fly off the pages from your scripture are for us. And Satan, the accuser of the brethren, wants us to only feel guilt for any mistake we make, any failure that we are guilty of. But you're not Satan. You're a loving God, so patient with your children throughout this life. And we are so grateful. But there are those that have believed in Satan's lies about you, told directly sometimes to them or through the world. But the truth can only be known about you from you, and it comes from your word. And you give those who are sinners an opportunity to come to you, to be forgiven of all sin, to take their place as one of your own children, to have a heaven waiting for them, ready for them, already prepared. If you have never opened your heart to Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, you have a chance right now because you are a sinner. You break the commandments of God. For that, there is no forgiveness apart from Jesus Christ who died to save you from the judgment to come. If you would like to have Jesus embrace you, to be one of his own, 
in spite of what Satan says, in spite of what the world says, or whatever you've concocted yourself, if you want to listen to God, then come to him. If you make this prayer in earnest, God will receive you. Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to be the one who saves me from judgment and rules over my life. And I give my life to you right here and now. Now, Father, if anyone makes this prayer, may they not be ashamed to confess it before men. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastors are to my left and right. If you have prayer requests or praise reports, they are here. If you've opened your heart to Christ, to come up and share with them you've asked Christ into your heart. If you're listening online and you've confessed this before God, then call the church, ask to speak to a pastor. But do not isolate yourself as though... All you had to do is say the words, and now it's going to be okay. Uh, God has put the church in place for a very strong reason. Well, as we go out this week, would you please stand? The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you, be gracious to you, lift up his countenance upon you, and give you peace. And to that, the righteous would say,